Good morning, downers and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we have sort of a miscellaneous or miscellany lineup. Miscellany, I think. A miscellany lineup, uh, starting um, with a a very interesting book um, by Anit Admini. Um, The book is called Shuck. (laughs) And here's... Oh, Shuck. (laughs) Or Shuck. Yeah, and Aina will tell you all about it. We've had so many interviews, uh, so many books received, and so many interviews with chefs and restaurateurs on the subject of Israeli food lately. Um, but the one I'm looking at right now is it, it tells me more about the context of Israeli food than any of the other conversations I've had put together. It's from Aina Adami, Admoni, and it's called Shuk, which is the, um, term, the, what you call markets, right? A Shuk is an open air market. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. It's open air market. It's a one stop for everything. Yeah, and you have photographs. And you have descriptions, really enticing descriptions of various favorite markets you have in Israel um, throughout. Now, what what is your background? You, you were born and raised in where? In Israel? I uh, born and raised in Israel in a small town called uh, Bnei Brak. And uh, my mom was, uh, she is Iranian. But growing up in some Iraqi home, and my dad born in Israel, but his family is from uh, Yemen. Yeah, amazing. Um, Does he put turmeric in his chicken soup? No. What is that? Chicken soup? No, we We have a Yemen recipe for chicken soup, which got Peter started. He puts, he makes chicken soup, a wonderful chicken soup, but he puts turmeric in it. Or Hawaiage, which that's the Yamanite put Hawaiage, which is okay. have some turmeric and some other spices, and I just did okay. it for the weekend for my daughter. I love this soup. Uh-huh, I do good, too. Good. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm that's what you need for your cold. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's genuine. I'm I'm pleased to pleased to know that I'm doing it right. Yeah, it's well, a great soup. My, my wife says it can't be chicken soup if it doesn't have dill in it. <laughs> Well, that's that's probably yeah, more Eastern European. Whatever. I didn't mean I didn't mean to to take us down a wrong pathway there. Right. Well, now um, about this book, um, it's probably you got interested in doing the cookbook because of your reference. I thought you had three. You're having another one too, right? I have. Uh, this is my second cookbook which I, I collaborate with my friend and um, uh, and a writer, editor, uh, Jana Gore. But my first cookbook is called Balabusta, and that came in 2013. Right. And, that, and that's the name of your first restaurant, too? Right. Not first, but, yeah, it's one of my one of more known restaurants. So, my first restaurant is Taim. We opened in 2005. Where, in New York? Yeah, in West Village, it's still uh, it's still here. Fifteen okay. years after. Which what is it? It's a falafel shop. It was like tiny hole in the world that we start. Now oh. we have six of the of them. One in DC, another one coming DC, one going to come in JFK. We have six location, 
Uh, and that's most the quick service concept we have. And then we have more fine dining as Balabusa. Yes, well, I mean, it's well-beloved, Balabusa is. Beautiful name. Yeah. And so um, your introduction, you explained about how you can actually bring this open-air market to Shook, to your kitchen. And I went through there, and, um, you know, a lot of these items and these, first of all, I eat salad three meals a day, too. I didn't even realize it was an Israeli thing. Oh, yeah. We eat a lot of vegetables. The, the, the way, I think, um, um, eating habits are super different in here. Um, people probably would never eat, have sausage or any kind of meat product early in the morning. Right. Um, Most Europeans don't like to do that. <laughs> I don't think even European. I don't know. I'm married to a French guy, so I don't think they have meat in the morning as well. Well, the, Engli- no, the English, the English, the English does. That's true. They have uh, a pudding, or the Irish have the pudding, which is like the sausage things. Yeah. Uh, that's true. But um, but Israeli, we will have a lot of different cheeses, a lot of eggs, and and salads, and chopped salad, or any other salad, but mostly chopped salad. Um, and for me, I grew up with a lot of like cooked food and a lot of traditional cuisine all around, but there is always going to be some different salads on the table next to it. So it was always accommodate, be accommodated by some freshness. Right. Well, I, I, as I said, I eat salad for breakfast too, and I didn't, I never thought of it as being odd. <laughs> Definitely not. No, I like the it. Most healthy things to yeah. start the day with something that is digest well and it's healthy. The, the section that I thought put the whole story of Israeli food in a perspective was your friend Jana Gur's um, introduction here, um, talking about all these various influences. Yeah. Tell us, I mean, some of these were astounding to me, like the uh, Salonica. I knew nothing about that. About again, what was that? Salonica, the the um, expelled Jews from Spain, settled yeah. in northern Greece. I had no idea. Yeah, now tell yeah, us. but there is a lot of different kind of cultures that came to Israel. Yeah, tell us those, <coughs> including the Indian Kuchinim, and uh, later on we had the Ethiopian, and we have a lot of Georgian. We have a lot of different. Um, ethnicities that bring uh, a lot of colors to um, um, melting pot cuisine. Yeah, and you say that, uh, that is Israeli cooks are rather fearless about adopting these. They're, they, they absorb the influences and they mingle them with their own traditions. I think it's very exceptional. It is, because in most of... If you're going to travel around Europe, each one has a very old tradition that you don't, sometimes you don't have much leverage and some space to be creative. You know, you need to go by the book. There is like tradition and thousands of years recipes that have been passing from generation to generation. With Israeli cuisine, as we are a very, very young country. Yes, that was interesting. Go ahead. Tell us yeah, more. As, as we are a super young country, we still kind of play around with the thought and what is the really the cuisine? Where is got the influence from? And and we feel the very kind of um, I don't know how to say that, but creative. I think there is a lot of creativity going on now in the 
in the food scene in Tel Aviv, and it's it's fascinating to see because when I grew up in Tel Aviv, restaurant when tourists used to come to Israel, they said it's the worst place to eat. Yeah, so it's very interesting how we change how people who got the food from inside the household to a restaurant scene, and how is that interpreted? Yeah, I mean, you pointed out that it used to be the only real Israeli food you'd get is in the home kitchen, and now you you have a, a, a very expansive restaurant scene. Not just expensive, you have all kind of restaurants. No, expansive, I said, expansive. Ex- I mean, yeah, yeah, I got it, sorry. <clears throat> but, uh, yes, absolutely, like, and you would have still the same restaurant that I grew up, that is like a mom and pop that doing just the Ammonite soup, was doing just like few Persian dishes, and like a place that doing just like Iraqi and Kurdish kube, and there is a lot of that as well. That is inexpensive, super delicious, What's very authentic. Cuba? I have, I just saw, I have two jars of it. What is it? Cuba. It's a seasonal so, economy. No. So, Cuba, uh, Cuba, there, there is, it's very common in Iraqi and Kurdish cuisine, uh-huh. and it's basically a, like a dumpling made with semolina. Oh, I have, I, I have two jars that have K-O- O B A H on the outside. What does that mean then? I don't know the spelling of, of that. Okay. Well, anyhow, you have a section called the pantry, and I loved because these are all my favorite foods going through, like tahini. You use a lot of tahini, huh? Um. Yeah. At home, yes. In a restaurant, I have to balance it with other things. But yes, absolutely, yes. I think it's one of the most extraordinary ingredient because it's. Um, basically almost no one have a, a, allergy, uh, allergy to sesame, which is great. I think it's vegan, so it's easy to play with it. Um, it's super, super healthy. Uh, it's a beautiful kind of creamy and nutty and earthy, uh, texture to it. And it's super diverse. So I make, I made so far probably like 50 different kind of tahini sauces, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. there is like, yeah, I, di- I just did, like, before something about tahini to, like, how many smoothies I can do with it and desserts. And uh-huh. it's it just is super diverse that you can do a lot of different things with well, it. Well, somebody sent us samples of uh, all all these different salad dressings. All of them are tahini-based. Yeah. And it's great. And it's vegan, which it's it's perfect. Yeah. Now, the, on- the only problem is getting the skin off, right? Skin? What skin? Getting the no. skin off the chickpeas. Oh, the chickpeas. Yeah, but we, that says, we're talking about tahini. Oh, that's I'm, just I'm, with I'm, on, I'm, on, the, I'm on the wrong thing. Now, okay. what was that? That was a wonderful country that where we got all the tahini. It's made in Israel. The mm-hmm. uh, sesame is grown in Africa. And yeah, it's in Ethiopia. Usually most of sesame coming from Ethiopia. Okay. See, I, I never knew about the Ethiopia connection either. And that's oh, interesting. Yeah. So with so much of interest in this book, besides the fact that the recipes are delicious. <laughs> that's the stuff I Thank love. Thank you. I may, I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to, you have this whole section on spice blends. Now, a lot of these I use, but I've never actually made them myself. But the way you explain them, they're not that hard to make, are they? It's super easy. Spices, <coughs> sorry, spices the super easy things. You just 
you want to get everything whole, um, all seeds, so you can just toast them a little bit and um, and just like ground them fresh. And you can change all your cooking by doing that. And doing the the blends is I, I found it super super easy and much. Uh, you have more control than you get it in the store. Well, I have my eye on pistachio duca. <laughs> that sounds oh, good. Oh, that's one of my favorite recipes in the whole <laughs> I love it. It's delicious. It's one. And even when I go to Israel and a lot of people do duca, nobody do that with coconut. Everybody use yes. and it's very dark and it's a little bit more. I found it a little bit bitter than the one I make here. And... My duka, I think the element of, like, crushed coconut inside, it's just, like, changing everything. Oh, sounds wonderful. And uh, Now, you've said in your za'atar, I use a lot of za'atar, um, you say that the oregano is, um, it, what's it, it's um, endangered or protected. Herb. Yeah, the za'atar itself, the, the herbs that call za'atar, uh-huh. it's... it's um, it's uh, it's true. It's very hard to. It's harder and harder to find. So I think they're growing more and more in Israel. But I um, <coughs> I had it before. I made mix in the past in the restaurant, and but I found it that there is such a great zatar these days elsewhere that it's easier to get than to make them, uh-huh. especially at home. Right. You need to dry it. If you get the fresh. Even if you not get zata and you get oregano and mix it with thyme, you need to know how to dry it. And I just found that there is certain things I found that it's always easier to buy, and it's not going to be better if you make it at home. Well, like not black necessarily. lime. Black lime. I mean, I I kept this lime on my counter to try to get it to turn black, and it was almost there. It took forever. It was almost yeah. ready. And they, uh, my cleaning woman threw it out. <laughs> so, cause she thought yeah, it was there is ways to do it. Usually you can do it in a, co- a rice cooker. Um, this black garlic you can do in rice cooker. And back in the days, they used to bury the lime underground. So that's how they used to dry them. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Well, this um, spice shop, which, by the way, you, you probably know, it's called uh, Burlap and Barrel. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, they they have black lime, so it's much easier for me to use that than to try. Yeah. So I was curious about your preserved lemon. I think preserved lemons are the most wonderful condiment or whatever you'd call it or ingredient. I love them. But yours is much more elaborate than mine. I yeah, mean, but I give uh, I think three or four different kind of ways to make it easier. Yeah, but um, I mean, you put spicing in it that uh, that I don't uh, put it in. You put in coriander. Yeah, uh, yeah. We want to flavor them a little bit. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I didn't do paprika. I never thought of that. Yeah, and I also put some uh, nice amount of sugar when most of the traditional one not require any sugar, and I think the sugar is actually balanced the saltiness. And when you, even if you forget to rinse them, you can use them because there is some sugar, you can use them right away and... I think it changed the whole recipe. And yeah, I, I always put, put sugar, sugar in mine since I start doing... I'll sorry? To, I said I've never put um, sugar in yeah. mine, so I better try your recipe and see. Yeah, they have the same recipe also in Balabusta, a very similar recipe that's working very, very well. What I improve in shuk is to add some few recipes that's faster. 
because I know people said, oh, I want to make that, but I don't have it at home. But it's also lemon is not uh-huh. um, not so cheap to make a big batch in certain season. So um, I think I, I in shuk I just have like a paste and I have a fast one. So I have few options. Right. Now, you have a section here on Israeli salad rules. Now, what might they be besides freshness? So, again, so Israeli salad rules? Rules. You have a whole chapter on rules Mm -hmm. of making Israeli salads. I didn't have a clue that that was an iconic uh, Israeli food. It is. I think in almost every meal we will have Israeli salad or Arabic salad. In Israel we call it Arabic salad. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and here they call it uh, somehow is transfer. Also, it's a little bit different. I think we change it a little bit, but there is like I think that also the rule is that there is no really rules in one way because you can add a lot of things as long you chop it super fine and make it very easy to eat and very fun. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, and what what is Silan. Silan is a date molasses or date honey. Right. It looks like honey. It's a little bit darker of date flavor. Uh-huh. And where does that come from? Um, come from uh, also Iraqi kind of culture that came to Israel. Uh-huh. And one of my previous editors was um, an Iraqi Jew, and she had she really could cook, I'll tell you. Um, so that must be a strong culinary tradition in Iraq. Yeah. In the Jewish sector. Yeah, it's very common. We always had that at home. My mom used to make her own. Uh, since my mom being kind of uh, raised in a, ch- in a teenager time in an Iraqi home, she we grew up with a lot of Iraqi food uh-huh. uh, and a lot of Persian food, so it was super interesting to see how she combined between all the time. And, and another recipe that I mean I'm I'm in love with pomegranates anyhow and you say mm-hmm. that they're they're um, they have a symbolic significance uh, for the uh, Israeli table right um the reason Rosh Hashanah we have a serious symbolic as we said we want to have a deed as the number of of the seeds and um and yes for me Pomegranate have a much more symbolic because I used to be forced to peel and break oh, body yes. <laughs> a case or two of pomegranate before Shoshanah so my mom can make a preserve for the rest of the year because that was the season. So you get it cheaper a little bit. My dad used to bring like two cases home oh, and we used to break them one after each other and it was super annoying. Um, but people then, tell you that all you do is you cut them in quarters and you hit them with a handle of a knife. And I do I know, that nothing happens. Not with my mom, I'm sorry. Uh, no. Well, it didn't happen with me either. I mean, <laughs> no, my mom would never let us cut. Let us do that in restaurant. But if she will see that I will cut and a half and then I ruin some of the seeds, it will bug her a lot. And also, she used to have like, she, she cut it very interesting. She just used to have like, kind of score them a little bit and then break them very gently and then seed by seed take them down and then she cook it for like five hours slowly and strain them like three times. Wow. Yeah, crazy stuff. Yeah, and here's another recipe. Tell us about 
cauliflower tabbouleh with crunchy seeds. This looks heavenly. Yeah, and it's super delicious and super healthy. And I like to use a lot of seeds and texture in my food. And I really like the ideas that um, cauliflower can look like couscous. Couscous is one of my favorite starch in all time. And it looks very similar and it's super easy to make. And you don't have any gluten. So there is a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people send that um, they love this recipe. Um and I think we we have a lot of different things inside, so it's super it's super crunchy, it's super healthy. It's it's just to have so many layers of flavor. Right now, you you use a lot of cauliflower, but I never I never get the right. I don't know. Um, I tried cauliflower steaks. Um, now, Elan um, Shoya. Um, uh, Shia. Shia did um, a dish when he had Shia in New Orleans um, that was a whole roasted cauliflower, but he did it in that really hot pizza oven. Yeah, this and, is a, a Yalshani dish. Um, the the old cauliflower, it's something he started in Israel several years back, uh-huh. and it's became a super... Um, it's became a super famous for me personally... I rather have uh, floret or something that have a little bit less um, surface of texture because when you do a whole cauliflower, it's nice on a crust and it's looked pretty. But I never find it as tasty as floret. Well, thank you because I I can't either. I I gave up making it. So <laughs> you yeah, I found it just uh, kind of a hip and trendy and cool. And it's nice to serve it when you have a vent. Everybody's saying, "Oh my God, this is beautiful," but it's not. As much I will do, and I did many times, you know, I have one recipe that I put it inside the burning charcoal when you do grill outside, and that makes some sense because it's easy. You put some flavor, and then you take it out. You have this smoky flavor with all this. But for me, I rather it crispy by roasting or frying, and I think it's it's much, much nicer. Of course, you talk about um, eggplant, too. I mean, that's sort of the universal food. We, we were reminiscing, Peter and I, that we went to a, um, uh, what was it? It was a sushi shop in London. And uh, wasn't, it was just a Japanese restaurant, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and they and do we, the miso things I love with the Japanese eggplant, right? Well, they, yes. they did this, the one that you have here, the charred eggplant. It was wonderful. Somebody told us it was the best thing they'd ever eaten. Yeah. So we wonder. so we had to go we had to go get some, and it was <laughs> it was pretty good. It was good. Yeah. No, I know. I one of my favorite eggplant in all time was in a Japanese restaurant in Amsterdam. Actually, that was like really? crusted with miso, and it was Japanese steamed, so it was super soft and it was delicious. And I think the biggest problem here in America that people don't know how to treat eggplant. They don't understand this vegetable very well. They don't know how to cook it. They don't understand that if they fry it, they need to have this beautiful very brown color because if not it's not going to cook all the way and to eat afra eggplant is the worst for me so i think for years i heard people said i don't like eggplant it's not it tastes weird and i'm like okay because you never ate uh, probably a great eggplant and right. that's something that for us was super super important to introduce the way that you do eggplant how you treat eggplant how you cure eggplant if you need to cure eggplant 
about frying, about roasting, about burning, the oil, the whole, every, every details we can provide, I thought is super important. So, uh, listeners, let me say that there's, there's so much that you don't really know about Israeli food that you're going to find in this book. But um, you're also, you're going to learn some really delicious recipes with some of the highlights of Israeli cuisine. Uh, if you want this recipe for shakshuka, uh, it seems to be the only dish anybody ever knows. But um, I've had some pretty awful shakshuka. And this, your recipe looks wonderful. And then you have um, sections on, I never even realized that that chicken, that Israelis are mad about chicken, which is a whole uh, chapter in this book. And you even have Ethiopian chicken in here. Um, I mean, there's just, there's just so much stuff that I can't even imagine how you put it all together. But um, congratulations on you. Thank you so um, much. I have to have Peter read the latke section. He's the latke maker. But he's so never... you should try the aruk. It's an easier latke. The beet is great. <coughs> but the aruk, the kind of like patties, Iraqi vegetarian, mm-hmm. uh, the made with baked potato. Um, and it's one of also a great easy recipe to make latke. A little bit different than than the regular latke, but super delicious and easy. Yeah, well, he travels with his box grater to take that. <laughs> <laughs> in case he meets the potato. You know. Funny. I know. Well, this is, again, is a wonderful book. Uh, let's not forget to mention the desserts, which, of course, are wonderful. And uh, um, the outdoor grilling, which is a tradition as well. That's wonderful. And uh, you, you get the flavor of what it's like to eat this fresh, adventurous, and very, very um, uh, adventurous and creative food, which is Israeli cuisine. Um, thank you again. Annette. Thank you. And again, it's Shuk, and from market to table, the heart of Israeli home cooking, and it's just wonderful. I have lots of things to try. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And don't go away because we'll be right back with a story on a similar theme. And we'll keep you guessing until after the break, so don't go away. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to bring you, we don't usually have uh, one, a guest of this ilk on our show. Not he is a, yeah, it's a Kenneth M. Horowitz is an Esquire, uh, ladies and gents. Um, he is an attorney uh, with a very, very intense passion uh, for food and flavors. His book is Deep Flavors, actually. Um, deliciously me- reimagined kosher recipes 
um, all, by him. All, all, all the way from the heart of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking to Kenneth M. Hurwitz. <laughs> Ken, we're going to call you. Um, I'm going to invert some suggestions we got from your publicist. Um, the, she listed last, something that I'm kind of intrigued with. I will preface this by saying that you have, for is it 51 years, been a, an attorney and CPA. And the question is, how does being a lawyer or lawyering relate to cooking and recipe writing? Well, as as it relates to cooking, I'm not necessarily so sure that it does, but as to developing recipes, my whole approach to my practice is solving problems. And so as a problem solver in the kitchen, I had the problem that I needed to make sure that the recipes I made were readable in English, as I say, because Lord knows people have trouble communicating in English to where people understand them. Right. Making sure that there's a lot of flavor in the food, which which is something I enjoy. And number three, making sure that the recipes can be made in a kosher style, because we keep a semi-kosher home. Right. And, and I, wanted, I wanted my book to be available to all of my Jewish readers, and to, and to foodies. I mean, really, the book is about food. And, and so, for example, my, uh, daughter's in-laws just made the, uh, 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 mushroom spinach lasagna, which won the blue ribbon at the state fair of Texas. And, uh, and, and they're in New York and, and so they had to make it from the re- recipe in the book. Uh, and she said that everybody had two or more helpings, so oh, I think good. it was a success. Before we go any further, then let's uh, mention that the book is called Deep Flavors, and it's subtitled A Celebration of Recipes for Foodies in a Kosher Style. And, and the reader can uh, uh, see more about the book in the website, www. Deepflavors, that's plural, www.deepflavorscookbook.com. And it has the uh, pictures, it has a table of contents so you can see what's in it and uh, see the variety of foods, everything from Jewish food to Middle Eastern foods to uh, Jamaican foods to Southern food to Texas food, Mexican, uh, just the variety of foods we eat in our house. Okay, and, and you have the wide variety. Some, many of those foods are, are native to Texas too, right? Yeah, and, you know, when I first came to Texas, I had never eaten Tex-Mex food, and my wife and I have grown to love it. It's, uh, Where are you it's, from? It's, originally, I grew up in Atlanta. Right, that's what uh, I thought, yeah. Which is very different, of course, from, from Texas, and there, at that time, there were no Mexican restaurants uh, that I can recall in Atlanta. Certainly, my parents never went to one. And the first Mexican food I had was when I was with the government in Washington D.C., and it was a real surprise to my taste buds when I tasted it. Uh, but uh, so, you know, of course, uh, in, in in Mexican cooking, uh, Mexican cooks use a 
lot of lard and that sort of thing. And that's strictly non-kosher because it's pork fat. And <laughs> that's so, for sure. <laughs> you know, the, so, the, the guy who has a company called Bacon Freak, yeah, he, he's kosher. <laughs> and it's he's, not there's no bacon in the product. No, his 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 father helped him to create the product. Yeah. His, his father chemist. his father's a food scientist. A food scientist. Yeah. So he said so, but 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 also, you know, I I didn't want to eat a lot of fat in my food anyway. And so part of what I had to figure out was A how to make it kosher, but also how to make it healthy. So for example, uh, frijoles for fritos or refried beans, classically made by Mexican cooks, are cooked in fat and mashed. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, a lot of fat, and and my recipe in my book has a lot of spices in it. Um, traditional Mexican kind of spices: cumin and chili powders, uh, ancho fat. chili powder, uh, uh, oregano and thyme and cilantro, and it's very flavorful. And the, all, all the fat that's in it is maybe a tablespoon or so of olive oil to to saute the onions and garlic. And so there's ways to to make food healthy and delicious at the same time. And that's the goal that I have. That's one of the issues, the, the problems that I solve as I'm cooking is how do I make it delicious, how do I make it healthy, and uh, and so forth. Now, I'm reminded that some years ago, there was a, a, fo- a foodie lawyer, I think in New Orleans, called F. Lee Bailey. <laughs> I, I think we've all heard of him. <laughs> yeah. he's, he, he's probably still alive. I'm not sure whether he is or not. I don't know. I think he even wrote some books about it. Well, his, of course, he was a criminal lawyer. and my, my clients, hopefully, none of them are criminals. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a very famous criminal lawyer who became a very famous chocolatier as well. He, he said he was tired of be, having his life threatened. <laughs> Lord knows we love chocolate miles. <laughs> what, what's his name, love? He's in Missouri, right? Yeah, no. I, I have one thing to point out to you, by the way, since I know something about it. Cuban black bean soup, right? Well, it was originally designed as a vegetarian dish. No ham hocks. Well, mine doesn't have, it's not vegetarian. It's got beef sausage in it, and it's got smoked turkey in it. Uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, it was originally designed as, I don't know, everybody puts meat in it, but my Cuban cousin assured me that it was supposed to be vegetarian and no ham hocks alive. <laughs> well, there were, there were recipes that I originally saw had ham, ham hocks in it, and so oh, I, they do that. And so, so uh, I said, "How can I get uh, smoky and 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 umami beef uh, 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 flavor in the in the soup, and at the same time have it be kosher?" And and I love smoked turkey, um, uh-huh. and uh, it's readily available at least in grocery stores here in in Texas. Um, Although I smoke my own turkeys also, so uh, it's readily available. But I think it's available uh, even in grocery stores in the, on the East Coast, and I've never shopped on the West Coast, so I don't know about that. But and it's certainly available on the internet. The internet net is a wonderful source of different kinds of food products, and I talk about in the book where you can find some of the foods and and how to locate them. Yeah, there's a there's a company in. South Dakota, I think, 
that, that make that, that will that will sell you a whole smoked turkey and ship well, it, there's, ship it there's, to you. Yeah, there's there's companies here in Texas that will do the same thing and yeah. ship them. Yeah. Uh, we were, good stuff. we were really excited. We got we got two or three, I think. I know. <laughs> we, 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 well, don't throw out the bones because you can use the bones to make smoked turkey stock. Oh, yeah, you, go. you got to have. I that. don't. I, I really try not to waste anything, um, and uh, because there's a flavor, there's flavor in all sorts of variety of uh, of things, and 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 like I said, the the, the bones in in the smoked turkey and in roast chicken and in roast turkey are all make can make delicious stocks that can be used to uh, convert otherwise bland foods into not so bland foods. Right. Now we got a lot of books trying to modernize um, kosher food. You know, especially around the uh, holidays we get all these efforts. I mean, there are lots and lots of books. And I think the big motivation is, as you indicated, is that traditionally, especially in, in certain um, branches of, of uh, Judaism, um, it, it's not so healthy. I mean, I remember uh, my my dear friend, um, Mr. Goldstein, who was my best friend's father, keeping the schmaltz pot right on the stove. And I remember well, getting violently ill on eating st- stuffed, stuffed chicken. Derma. Stuffed derma. Derma, yeah, stuffed derma. So, kishke. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought oh, I had a gallbladder it's, attack. Well, it's, uh, I think it's delicious, but I'm, I make uh, 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 chicken schmaltz and I keep it in the freezer. I make turkey schmaltz and I keep it in the freezer. I make duke, duck and goose uh, fat uh, uh, rendered uh, schmaltz, if you if you will. Of course, the French use that. It is nothing better than roast potatoes uh, roast in uh, goose fat or duck fat. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's, a, there's a restaurant uh, in Portland, Maine called Duck so, Fat. Duck Fat, yeah. That's the name of the restaurant. Duck Fat. And so, for Thanksgiving this year, because there are just uh, not, not so many of us, because my son and his family uh, went to, to France for the holiday, uh, uh, we made a, uh, a capon instead of a turkey, because uh-huh. it's a little, a little smaller. And when I made the sauce, I used a little bit of, of chicken schmaltz, or chicken fat rendered, instead of uh, olive oil, and it adds added a whole lot of uh, flavor to the uh, sauce. Uh, I mean, we're, I used a tablespoon, maybe two tablespoons for a couple of cups of, uh, of sauce, and uh, but you're going to use a tablespoon or two tablespoons of olive oil, and uh, and I, I don't think that's going to kill anybody, uh, hopefully. Um, no. And it adds flavor because you're going to use the fat anyway, because otherwise you can't thicken the sauce unless you use exactly uh, unless you use uh, cornstarch or something like that. Now, do, do you do you keep a secret stash of your food in the in the refrigerator at the office? No, no, I don't do that because uh, I mean, there's seventy five or eighty people here. And oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> so I, when I when I eat lunch here, I'd go I go out to lunch. You know, have you had a lot of feedback on the cookbook? I mean. Uh, are there just as many non-Jews as Jews actually uh, enjoying it? 
Absolutely. We, we, we went to a, a party last night with uh, some of my partners and their wives, and uh, four or five of the wives had, had already bought the book, and, and they came up to me and they were telling me about things they had cooked. and oh, yeah. And, and, and the, they enjoy reading because there's, there's hints of, of things, like, for example, one of my partner's wives uh, had been making pie crust, and she said, Ken, she said, Bobby's pie crust, which is in the book, is it almost like my pie crust? But yep. what I never did is I never refrigerated the pie dough. Oh, she she said, and we did that with my granddaughter, her granddaughter, and and when she when she talked to her granddaughter about refrigerating, and the granddaughter thought they were going to cook it right away, and 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 Joe said, no, we're we're going to put it in the refrigerator for two hours, and she said that made all the difference in the world in the quality of the pie crust. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, so it's there's a lot of little hints or or hacks uh, people call them yeah. to, as to to things to do that make and they're simple. I mean they're not complicated. If they're like putting something in the refrigerator and letting it sit for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to do that throughout the book, um, and I think I was from from all reports, people like reading it. Huh. So, but most of the, you, you, you're not totally um, strictly kosher, and you, but you don't do shellfish. And the the one food um, law that I, I never could grasp because it's not really just even for kosher. It was my Sicilian grandmother always told us never have milk with meat. Well, that's. That is one of the kosher rules. It is, but what I want to know is, it's not like based on um, uh, on. It, I mean, it's it's not based on kosher traditions only. It's it seems to be some sort of general rule of thumb, and I don't know where it came from, came, came from or why. I mean, it doesn't have the roots like in not eating pork or shellfish. There's some other reason, and I don't know what it is. Well, it is in the Bible where it says, "Thou shall not cook a uh, kid in his mother's milk," and, uh, um, oh, and right. so that's it's clearly that 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 uh, restriction is clearly in the Bible. And uh, but as I tell people, it, it, the rules, the basic rules are no pork, uh, uh, no shellfish, uh, no mixing of milk and meat. And I said, and I also tell them that I don't have any grapefruit in the cookbook either. And they look at me, and I say, "Well, I don't like grapefruit." <laughs> <laughs> I was puzzling that one myself, Ken. <laughs> I thought and you were so, going to. I thought you were going to say there was no broccoli in there because you're a Texas Republican. <laughs> no, I'm not. A, I'm not a, a Texas Republican. Uh, and and, uh, and you know, George George Bush is entitled to his own food preferences. I I hold no no ill will to to him uh, for that, but I love broccoli, and uh, and I love I love Brussels sprouts, and I love cabbage, and I love Chinese cabbage and broccolini, and there's there are very few vegetables that I don't love, and and uh, and and I I think there's there's recipes for the there's a lot of vegetarian recipes in the book because if you don't mix milk and meat, and it 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 leaves you a lot of room for Having to figure out, like with the lasagna that we talked about, 
how do you get deep flavors into it? Because the, the, the name of the book really is intended to communicate something. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get deep flavors into it? And at the same time, uh, have it where it can be made in a kosher style. And so uh, you, you, can, you can put cheese in it, you can put mushrooms in it. And I originally saw that recipe uh, or version of it in uh, some magazine or something. And, and, of course, you know, there's nothing original under the sun. But the, but the recipe had, uh, it was a mushroom broccoli lasagna. And, and I will represent to you in, uh, that, that the mushroom mixture that was in the recipe was not at all flavorful. I mean, it didn't have marsala in it, didn't have the herbs in it. But aside from that, uh, uh, I don't like broccoli that's cooked in in uh, in, uh, in in uh, uh, in a pan like that, where it's, it's going to get overcooked and it gets mushy and uh, olive green. Vegetables should be fresh and delicious. And so I, had, I said, well, what kind of vegetable can I put in there that won't taste terrible when it gets a little bit overcooked, as it will in a casserole? Because that's really what lasagna is. And, and so I came up with spinach, and so and that's another problem-solving kind of idea that I that I you know just think about and and how do I fix this and and make it delicious and, and that's that's the goal of the book and every recipe in here in the book in, in deep flavors is uh, is eaten in our house. I mean, every one of those my wife or I have cooked multiple multiple times. Now, if you ask me, have I made the uh, lemon coconut custard uh, cherry pie? The answer is no. I've never made that because my wife is the pie maker. Right. Well, listen, Ken. We we, we heard this rumor that there are some guys in Washington D.C. are looking for some tax lawyers because <laughs> they, they, they want somebody's tax returns looked at. So you you better pack a bag. And, and in the meantime, I've, I've lived in Washington, and I'm not going back. Yeah, we live there too. <laughs> well, th- th- thank you so much for joining us yeah, today on, much on the like menu. This book or success, actually, it's not a matter of life, but a success with a, a thoroughly researched book done with a very critical lawyer's eye. So. Enjoy it and, and have have a lot of connections with people through it. Ken. If I might, if I might mention the the website again, it's www.deepflavorscookbook.com. Good, we got it. Thanks a lot, Ken. Pleasure talking to you all. Bye bye. Bye bye. We should have had a, we should have had a quick song in there, isn't it? The stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah, right. But I but I promise I won't sing it, listeners. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back for the final segment of today's program. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation. Okay, listeners, what's the most important tool you should have in the kitchen? 
Can I answer that? <laughs> you, you, you can and can answer that. Go ahead. A knife. A knife. No, a knife. knife. A sharp, sharp. A sharp knife. <laughs> a sharp go. knife, and which he, means you should have a sharpener. And, and there are many his, wonderful sharpeners that actually work, but there has to be one thing. You have to actually employ them. This is looking at you, Peter and Nan Haig. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, let's let's get the story of Derek's. We're going to be talking to Matthew Bernard from, well, I'm going to say a workshop, but it's really Darek's is the corporate, uh, uh, he is the CEO of Darek's, which is the corporate umbrella, I guess we call it. Um, Matthew, describe just what your business is, how it's structured. So we uh, got into business about 45 years ago. We are a fourth-generation family-owned business, so I am the fourth uh, generation of our family to run it. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, And we make and sell sharpening equipment. So we have a line of um, products under some various brands, but all of our focus is on sharpening. Uh, We have um, products that go into manufacturing facilities, and we have products that you could put in your backpack and take out hiking with you or using your kitchen. Um, everything we do is about sharpening, though. So uh, that's been our focus and will continue to be. Now, um, we were going to talk about your mission because as I uh, came to understand is that you're as much about education, information, as you are about supplying the, the actual hard product. Yeah, so our mission is, of course, we want to make a product that people are excited about using and buying. But what we found, especially in the the realm of sharpening, is that most people um, are not sharpening the tools that they already own. Uh, instead, they're either throwing them away, um, saving them for later, or buying something new. And we'd really like to encourage as many people as possible, whether that's the, the equipment they use in their factory or the knives they use, to sharpen the tools and the knives that they already have rather than having to get rid of them and replace them. So part of that is the product, and that's an important piece, but also part of it is educating people on what it means to have a sharp tool and how they can um, get that much easier than they may have thought. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to have a sharp tool. Um, I, You'll be pleased to know that um, I have a carbon steel chef's knife from the 1960s, 1967, mm-hmm. and it's the best knife I've ever had. <laughs> what makes it a great knife? It cuts everything. It cuts things. Yeah, I mean, it's a little, you have to be, maintain it, you know, because it is yeah. not stainless, but it um, it's sharp, it, it holds the edge. Um, I just, it's, you know, when I need something done seriously, like uh, trimming artichokes. That's what I head for. And it seems like uh, that's been our experience as well, that most people have a knife or two that gets a lot of use. Um, It's their favorite knife, whether it's because of the way it looks or the way it cuts or maybe it has some uh, sentimental value. Um, We like to kind of say for people in their kitchen, you already own your best knife, but for a lot of people that best knife um, may be very dull. So how can we get them to sharpen it back up and put it back into use and really enjoy using it? Well, now, you you sent us this um, 
an electric knife sharpener, which also comes with a honing rod. Um, yes. And um, I'm assuming since there are so many, in fact, I own a great many of these sharpening devices, and that one Australian company went out of business. I can't remember what that Fu- was. Fury. Fury, yeah. Uh, that that was that. They, they made them for Rachel Ray. Rachel they were, they were yeah. orange, they had orange handles. Orange, yeah. Ugly orange handles. Yeah, but uh, but so uh, but the the thing is, um, what it, if there's so much on the market already? What did you do to produce your own brand, the the uh, workshop brand? Yeah, that's a good question uh, because you're right. There are a lot of knife sharpeners already on the marketplace. It's not like we're entering a a space that isn't crowded. And we really felt like the the purpose behind entering the market was to come up with something new. So most of the sharpeners on the market already use uh, quite similar technology. They use some form of an abrasive, a hard abrasive stone, and that could be in the form of a sharpening stone or in the form of a sharpening wheel. Um, and they use that kind of rough abrasive to grind away part of the knife, and then they use a, a finer ceramic or some other type of abrasive to try and polish the edge. Um, what we wanted to do was basically put the, the knife sharpening technology that a professional sharpener would use or a knife maker would use, put that into a package that everyone could use at their house. So inside uh, our, our machines are flexible abrasive belts, So rather than a hard, rigid stone, we have flexible belts, which is how most professional knife sharpeners and also how most knife makers are sharpening their knives before they send them to you. So we've taken that same technology and and put it in a package that everyone can use. So I felt like that was an innovation worth sharing and uh, worth bringing a product out for. Now, those are replaceable. How often do you have to replace them? The flexible belts that come with our machines are going to last probably 150 to 200 sharpenings before you'd have to consider replacing them, <laughs> which for most life. people is pretty close to a lifetime of sharpening. I thought, I thought you were going to say 150 <laughs> lifetimes. <laughs> oh, dear. So um, what kind of feedback are you getting on this product? Uh, we're getting a lot of positive feedback. Um, the knife sharpening space, if you will, or market, uh, has been pretty stagnant for five to ten years. There hasn't been a lot of new innovation. There hasn't been uh, a lot of new design from some of the companies that have been in there for quite a while, and they're excited to try something different, especially knowing that it's really a replication of how professionals do their knife sharpening. So something new and different. Um, We've also included quite a few features to really make the sharpener a lot more approachable and take the skill of sharpening out of the hands of the user and put it into the machine so that everyone can get a, a great result. Why, why don't you go over some of those features? That would be great to know. Yeah, I like the touched thing. One, two, three. Yeah, so, one, two. Um, yeah, exactly. So one of the features that we built in was the touched timer. Um, and so rather than having to keep track of how long you've been sharpening for or how dull was your knife when it started and now how, uh, how do I sharpen it in the right way, we've basically included three preset sharpening modes. So you choose, um, you know, basically how dull is your knife or a way to think about it is how long has it been since you've sharpened your knife last. And the machine will then go through a uh, series of time sharpening cycles to 
uh, on the first step, remove material, uh, fix any damage that may be on the knife, uh, all the way through a final polishing stage so that um, all you have to do is pull the knife through and end up with a nice polished edge regardless of um, the damage that it started with. Some other uh, features that we've included are some uh, built-in angle guides. So there's different knives at different angles. People want to be able to resharpen the knife that they have at the angle in which it came to them. So we've included um, these nice angle guides so that all you do is set your knife in the in these uh, sharpener, pull it through, and it holds the same angle on the entire edge of that knife for you. Um, and then finally, uh, you touched on the honing rod. Um, you know, people have been using honing rods for a long time. One of the challenges with them is really getting the proper angle set. Yeah, I've so never been able to, to do that. I, I don't know why. I guess I don't have the upper body strength to deal with it. I don't know. I don't know if it's strength or if it's just a technique. You know, I think over it's time people could, yeah. can develop that technique. Um, but we've actually included on that honing rod two angle guides. So yeah, rather I saw than having that. to hold the angle, you just you can just set the knife on the proper angle and um, run it down the honing rod and know that you've got it at the right angle every single time. Now, I mean, I have um, a whole bunch of knives, as I told you. Um, and I have one... One of these brands, well, I might as well just come out and say it is the Wusthof people, mm-hmm. they developed a different kind of an edge. And they said that you needed a different sharpener for that kind of an edge. It's, I forget what the angle is on the edge. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you? It seems kind of excessive to have to do that. To use a special machine for resharpening uh, their, their, their knives? Yeah, a particular it's a different angle, particular brand. Yeah. Right? So uh, actually, we have partnered with Wustoff, um, and we make the machine that they recommend you resharpen your Wustoff knife with. So Which is that? we have developed it. We've developed a special um, angle guide that perfectly matches the angle of the Wustoff knife that you bought from the factory, so that you can know that you're getting that same angle each time. But you mean I need to get a new sharpening thing for the new knife style? They have changed their style of knife over the years, uh, where they used to have a, a thicker, wider, uh, more European style uh, knife. Now they have a, a little bit thinner, um, more narrow angle to, on their knives. Yeah, the, the latest one actually is quite nice because it has like a um, um, it has a curve on one end, and mm-hmm. you can rock it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but um, anyhow, I, what happens if I use one of my older Wustoff knives in your workshop sharpener? What will happen? You'll ha- you'll end up with a sharp knife. Will be the end result. And, but the the very edge of the knife may be at a slightly different angle than when it was originally sent to you. My guess is that um, you wouldn't be able to tell a difference side by side. But um, you'll end up with a sharp knife regardless. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that's good to know. Would be a shame to have a new new sharpener and a new knife that weren't compatible with each other. Well, you know, I, I, I told you, I mean, I'm not telling tales out of school, that, that you know, I, I frequently end up sending my knives out to a professional for sharpening. <laughs> and... and um, I, I send out all my sent out all my knives 
and our son was visiting, and he was slicing away in the kitchen. He sliced his hand open and was finished for the rest of the trip. (laughs) (laughs) They always say dull knives are more dangerous, but I'm not so sure that's true. You know, I think it depends on um, doll knives are more dangerous if you end up cutting yourself, I think they say, because you're pushing a whole lot harder, and so that the cut ends up being a little deeper. Um, a sharp knife is, could definitely cut you as well, but it might be a little bit cleaner and, and not quite so deep. But a cut's a cut either way, so not good. <laughs> well, I always say, you know, don't cut towards you. Cut, talk, you know, cut away. I mean, I could put that on a... a Soundtrack, a loop. You, you could, you could, you could <laughs> yeah. do that. So, she's a, you know, she's you a, mentioned that you send your knives out to be sharpened, and uh, you know, for us, um, that's actually our goal is for people to have sharp knives. And if, if sending knives out uh, to get them resharpened is the easiest way for someone to do that, I'm all for it because our experience has been that most people who, even though they really enjoy spending time in the kitchen and cooking, um, they mostly have dull knives, and if we can, can get a few people um, to change that habit and sharpen their knives, we, we know that they're really going to enjoy that experience of cooking a whole lot more. What we found with people who send their knives out is, unless they have a, a big collection, which it sounds like you do, then yes. they're actually without their knives for some period of time, which uh, most people don't like. So we tried to marry that same sharpening technology that that person you're sending your knives to is using, uh, but put it in your house so that right before you um, go to chop up some vegetables for dinner or clean a piece of fish or meat, um, you can just sharpen it real quick and get right back to what you really enjoy doing. Okay, so that's what I'm going to be able to do with, with this. New there one. you go. Good. Exactly. Good, good, good. Yeah. And um, Now, when we, get, when we get our new knife block from, where, from wherever <laughs> it is, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be even more prepared for, for the world exactly. of cooking. Yeah, I have I have a magnetic strip, and, and I have so many knives that I need another one, but that means a whole big re-di- redesign of my ceramic tiles that have yeah. <laughs> cut. Oh, it's never-ending, is it? You, you, should, you, should, you should see Anne's kitchen. She, she, <laughs> she, she, she put ceramic tiles all, all over the walls of the kitchen. <laughs> So, uh, well, if it, uh, if, you know, a new magnetic strip means a little rearranging, but a, a new collection of knives, I think it's, uh, worthy yeah. to, uh, make a switch. Yeah. I, I love those. I like the, yeah, magnetic strips who, more who, than anything. Who, who's the one you just sent off an inquiry about? I don't know. Who's the one, who's the one that Kwame likes? Oh, yeah, my friend Kwame. Method, method Kitchen or something like that, I think it is. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. So any yeah, other? Our, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say in our kitchen we have. Uh, I have. I like the magnetic strips as well, but uh, they have, there's a really nice. I'm not sure the brand uh, one that actually is a magnet piece of magnet inside of. That's piece the of one. Wood, so That's, that yeah. so that when you don't so that when you set your knife back on the magnet, it's not um, banging into a piece of metal and potentially damaging it. That's this is the one that uh, I think it stands upright and it's thin, right? Uh, and I've seen that one. This one, the one I we have at our kit, we have a smaller kitchen, so it attaches to the side of a cabinet. But it's like um, just a strip of wood. But I've seen both, and I think they're a really nice way to store your knife. I mean, once, if you're taking the time to take care of your knife and to sharpen it, and it's the most important tool in your kitchen, um, make sure when you're putting it away that you're taking care of it there as well. And 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 
buy more Derek's knives because there's because there's a gang of people in Ashland, Oregon, who are who are just anxious to make sure that you get all the knives that you have as sharp as can be, and they're all smiling at the camera. Yeah, that's the website. Why don't you give us the website since we're talking about it? Yeah, so uh, the website where you can find us would be WorkSharpTools.com. That's great. And you'll be able to find a whole line of uh, kitchen uh, and culinary sharpeners there, as well as a broader line of um, sharpeners for people who are enthusiasts for hunting and fishing and uh, outdoor activities. That's great. Well, well, it's wonderful meeting you, Matthew, and I wish I knew as much about sharpening as you do and your company does. Uh, I appreciate, um, you know, getting to know you guys as well. And I'll, what I'd say is we've taken the time to become experts in sharpening so that you don't have to. Uh, that's the whole um, point of what we're up to is making really easy-to-use products so that everyone can have a sharp knife and not have to be an expert in it. Okay, listeners, well, that's all from On The Menu Radio. Until next week, same time, same place, and until then... Bye-bye.